Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. The couple ran hand in hand to the nearest bicycle shop, nervous, frantic, and desperate with the looming armies advancing in the past days. The radios had announced hours earlier that the city would not be defended from the approaching Nazi forces. The couple didn't have a car, none of the trains were running. Two million Parisians had already fled. Hans and Margaret tried out the tandem bike for sale, but realized that they couldn't manage. Instead, the anxious pair resorted to buying spare bicycle parts, which cost them as much as they had been paying for a month's lodging at a respectable hotel. The manic inflation reflective of the exodus at hand. Hans somehow constructed two separate bicycles that night, from the hodgepodge of pieces they had purchased the day prior. Early the next morning, under the cover of still dark skies, the couple departed the city, with the explosion of mortar shells audible in the distance. They carried with them some food rations, a little clothing, and the manuscript for a children's book. This is the story about a story, and a couple whose harrowing tale of survival in the face of grave evil would help give the world one of its most beloved characters. Over the last two seasons, we've enjoyed bringing unknown stories from history to you every weekend. Now it's your turn to bring a story to us. Every town in every corner of the world has a story, and its history is our history. Tell us the story about your hometown and what makes it special or unique. We're calling it Hometown History. Who or what is your town known for? Tell us your hometown story either in an email or a voice message from our Facebook page. Phil and I will choose one hometown's history to research and profile in a full episode of Season 3 of The Missing Chapter. And we'll contact you to be a part of it. Every hometown has a story. The next chapter we add to the history textbooks could be yours. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. I'm Phil Schaff here with Phil Horner. Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast. Before we get started, let's talk some coffee. Today's blend is the from Utica Coffee Roasting Company. It's the Live It Blend, the ultra-caffeinated blend, which, Phil, we certainly need on a day like today. It's a Friday. It's a Friday. It's a Friday. Um, We're recording, recording on a Friday. There we yep. go. Um, and it, it comes from uh, Alex Carbone, who's done a great job working up the, the fitness mill in downtown Utica. And he has an entire um, building that he's set up called the Libet Building downtown, which uh, shout out to Alex if you're listening. Great job, buddy. And, um, you know, thank you for providing a great fitness mill for all of us to work out. And now, Phil, before we get started with today's episode, we got something I think we need to discuss uh, on air from one of our friends, Tracy, who 
really blew our minds with with a text uh, just yesterday. Yeah, one of our coworkers and an avid listener to the Missing Chapter podcast reached out to us yesterday. She'd noticed on Netflix just about a month ago, uh, a new movie was released with Colin Firth in it um, called Operation Mincemeat. So if you're an avid listener as well, uh, and you think back, and boy, this seems like forever ago, Phil, season one, episode seven for us, an episode that has done really well, was extremely popular, called uh, Resurrection Deception. Yep. They went ahead and, and took that idea, uh, took that story, and developed it into a Netflix uh, movie. Now, is it conceivably possible that they maybe, I don't know, heard the Missing Chapter podcast and I, I got would, inspired? Boy, wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> be awesome. No way of ever knowing, but you think to yourself, hey, that that story had to originate from somewhere. The thought had to be you know, planted in someone's mind via something. Maybe a podcast. Yeah. I don't know. But um, I haven't had the opportunity, you know, as we sit here and record to to actually watch that. But I'm interested, too. It's on my list of things to, to watch over the summer when maybe we get some free time. Phil. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really looking forward to it. So thank you, Tracy, for letting us know about that. And uh, yeah, we, we maybe have to do maybe a follow up episode uh, of Resurrection Deception and maybe discuss what the movie was and how maybe some of the stories, you know, compare and contrast. Right. And if you're a, a World War Two uh, enthusiast, if you like studying that time period and you you've watched that on Netflix, you know, check out that episode. Absolutely. And maybe we've touched on some things uh, that that wasn't covered in in the film. Yeah. All right. So, Phil, today's episode, obviously a curious case of survival. Um, I think the intro did a really good job of maybe perking up my ears and, and mm -hmm. obviously inspiring some of that curiosity. So take it away whenever you're ready. Yeah. You know, Phil, you and I both have younger kids and it's always interesting. There are certain stories that you and I grew up with yep. that now we're reading to our children. And it's interesting. I always think about this with Charles Schultz and the Peanuts. You have a character, you have a storyline that has just transcended time and generations, which yep. is pretty remarkable in today's, you know, today's age. Um, and this is kind of the origins to one of those books, one of those stories, one of those characters. And it starts in Hamburg, Germany in 1898. Hans Rey, R-E-Y, was born there, Hamburg, Germany, September 16th, 1898, as was Margaret, nearly six years later, on May 16th, 1906. The two had known each other as children in Hamburg. They actually grew up together. They were both from Jewish families. And before moving separately to Paris, they had spent years together in Rio de Janeiro, uh, Brazil. Again, just by coincidence, Hans yeah. had moved there first, not long after serving in the German army during uh, the First World War. He was selling bathtubs. And Margaret happened to move to Rio and was working there as a photographer. The couple realized that they were together again, or at least in the same city. They fell in love and went into business together, designing large posters and maps. So you have two people who, remarkably enough, you think about the word fate, born in Hamburg, Germany. They both moved separately, doing separate careers, separate jobs in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, where they again meet up with one another and they fall in love. So, I mean, that in and of itself is an episode is it, a story. right it's just yeah. it's it's amazing how people's timelines of life intersect or you know they run parallel to one another and then they cross over like you've always you've always heard of like you know twins that were separated at birth right. that, that lived like completely parallel lives and then find out that oh yeah we've been you know uh in in separate apartments but across the street from each other this entire time and you know like you've heard those stories but and if it's meant to be love finds be. a way right That's it. yeah so the couple um, though they never had children, uh, not then and not ever. 
it's interesting to this story to note that they did live with two marmoset monkeys. Oh, wow. Which I think are, are interesting pets, you know, not, not your typical pet, we should say. Um, two marmoset monkeys, I guess, were their unofficial children. Um, Margaret and Hans eventually married in 1935 and sailed to Europe for a belated honeymoon uh, in Paris, along with their two pet monkeys. And it was a long, rainy crossing of the Atlantic Ocean. Margaret passed the time by knitting the marmoset sweaters to help keep them warm. Mm -hmm. Sadly, however, both monkeys fell ill on the trip and died during the journey. Hans and Margaret both arrived safely. Um, their, their honeymoon was great. They fell in love with Paris as much as they had you know, fallen in love with each other and decided to re relocate altogether and make Paris, France, their new residency. Now, fast forward four years, 1939. Okay. Nazi Germany's invasion of Poland in September of 1939 worried the Jewish couple, but they could never have imagined just how dire the circumstances would become in France by June of 1940. And this is what I was you know, getting into with my introduction, Phil. Yeah, and this is something where, as you were talking about 1935, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, you know, 1935, we always think right. of, we're not too far away. timelines, yeah. you know? And then you're thinking to yourself, gosh, if they only knew what was about to come. I know it, I know it. Hans and Margaret found themselves desperately trying to escape Paris as Adolf Hitler's forces closed in around them, occupying much of the pristine French countryside in the days leading up to their getaway. The couple left literally with little more than the clothing on their backs and some meager food rations, and one of their most cherished belongings, their life's work, unpublished manuscripts of children's books, including one in particular entitled Fifi, The Adventures of a Monkey. Hans and Margaret Ray joined an estimated 5 million refugees, most of them Jewish, in a mass exodus out of Nazi-occupied France and the surrounding countries. They were forced to sleep wherever they were able to, often finding themselves on the floors of barns, restaurants, and abandoned buildings. Finally, after four days of biking, that makeshift bike that they bought yeah. the parts to, and Hans stayed up the night before and was able to, you know, somehow manufacture, you know, two bikes that they were able to escape on. They reached the Spanish border where they purchased train tickets to neighboring Lisbon, Portugal. Now, the Hanses were fortunate and extremely lucky. And this goes back to their years in Brazil. Both possessed Brazilian passports from their previous time spent there. Hmm. And as a result, they were able to acquire visas to leave Europe and sail back to Rio in relatively short order. Whereas without those passports, I think a lot of those, you know, 5 million uh, migrants, immigrants, probably weren't as fortunate. Yeah. Absolutely. That's what put them to the front of the line. Wow. So they leave behind <clears throat> France. They leave behind war-torn Europe and the lives that they'd created with one another in Paris. When they arrived safely in Brazil, they decided to try and continue their move to the United States. Okay. So they travel, you know, from Brazil to Paris on their honeymoon. They they establish their lives there. But because of World War II, they travel back to Brazil. And they're going to travel north, continue on to the United States. And they choose New York City as their final destination. Sure. Now, this move proved to be their big break in terms of their careers uh, that they were about to embark on. But ironically, 
Ironically, after all of this, the constant moving, the outside threats created by you know wartime circumstances, their luggage is actually lost on the trip from Brazil north to New York, and with it, the cherished manuscript that they'd carried with them. Fortunately, this case of bad luck was met by an equally astonishing case of fortune. They still had several prints of the story and of the illustrations. Oh, my gosh. So they began searching for a possible publishing company to pitch their children book to. At this point, what other careers are they going to establish? Right, You're in New York City during World War II, um, although the United States hadn't officially entered yet. But really, the only thing they have with them is this manuscript that they feel very strongly about. And they're hoping if we pitch this idea, this will be kind of our foot into the door to establishing some sort of a way of, of surviving and supporting ourselves in New York City. Um, their book was, was met with surprisingly warm reception. Shortly after arriving in New York City, they signed on with a publishing house. Mm-hmm. One of the first suggestions their American publisher made, and it, this is interesting in itself, was that they choose a less French name. Huh. So I don't know if this is a reflection. I mean, certainly there's not a lot of animosity in the United States during this time toward the French, right, yeah. but maybe it's more of just um, more of an English version. You know, you think about, you know, anybody coming into the United States, whether it be through, you know, Ellis Island or whatever, you hear the stories about having to manipulate names and change lettering. Um, that's essentially I don't what, know. How, how our name, I think right. we might've mentioned yeah. it in, a, in a season one episode. That's how, you know, the, my last name Schaff was originated. Right. So, I mean, it wasn't uncommon, but it's interesting for the publisher to have suggested that. It is interesting. And maybe, maybe he's just thinking, Hey, we got to appeal to the masses, right. you know, and the majority of people here are English speaking. I don't know. That's a good, that's a yeah. good question. Might be something we can look into, but the Ray is R-E-Y-S. Right, the Rays were accustomed to name changes. In Rio, Hans had begun signing his pieces as H.A. Ray mm-hmm. in place of Hans Augusto Ryersbach. Margaret Waldstein became Margaret Ray. They had new business, business cards made with their more marketable last name and ran an advertising agency. In the end, audiences everywhere were first introduced to a small, mischievous monkey named Curious George. All right, Phil, we're back from break. Um, and yet again, awesome story. Thanks. Awesome story. Now, I think there's a trend in a lot of our episodes, not all, but a lot mm-hmm. of our episodes, uh, a lot of coincidences, a lot of accidents turned brilliance, right. a lot of um, I, I would say the number one thing across all of our episodes, because it, it seems to be apparent in all of these people that we highlight, is this just innate passion that cannot be thwarted by any circumstance, Right, can't be stopped. So, you know, you have all these different people who are like, I don't care what is happening in the world. I don't care what's happening in current events. I don't care how many people say no to me. This is something I'm so passionate about that I'm eventually, it's going to come to fruition, regardless of whatever's happening outside. I look at these two people who are facing some of the most dire circumstances history has ever conjured up. They've not only found a way to, to create a silver lining for themselves, but it's almost like history has intertwined them. So 
there was no other option for this story to to be released. Am I, am I is this a stretch or is that no, absolutely, Phil. And I think it's interesting, and I think it might segue into something that that our listeners could be interested in, in that you know, whatever whatever books we read, whatever music we listen to, whatever we're exposed to culturally, you know, the, it, the importance of finding out more about the author, more about the musician. I think you appreciate the work more too. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, you, you look at a Curious George story and we said, it's, it's funny, the stuff that resonates throughout time and with different generations. Obviously you look at those stories and there, there's a simplicity to them and they're fun and kids, you know, enjoy the illustrations. But I think then if you delve deeper into obviously the story of the illustrators and, and what they went through to create Curious George, it makes you appreciate them and maybe even look at them differently. And I just think, you know, that's a door you can open to everything in, in your life. Right. You yeah. know, where do these people, what's their background and, and really, what are they trying to express through their work? Yeah, I agree. And so, it, that, that still holds true, obviously, to this story specifically. So that first Curious George story was published in 1941. And it, and it reads notably longer than most books pitched to the same age group these days. And after arriving to the big city, George finds himself in prison, actually, in the very first book. Wow. After unwittingly calling the fire department when there's no fire. So George then escapes prison by walking on electrical wires with the balance of a circus performer. After that, uh, Curious George ends up in peril again when he clutches too many helium balloons at once. Yeah. But again, he escapes his peril. In 1947, the book Curious George Takes a Job uh, was released, and it's even more hectic. George escapes the zoo, rides atop a bus, has a sp uh, spaghetti fiasco, <laughs> becomes a happy four-handed dishwasher, works as a window washer impulsively paints a room in a high-rise building as a jungle scene. Um, but he ends up, in the 1940s, these were all things that were very um, playful. Yeah. Very playful. And I think that's what people needed at this time. And those are the stories you wanted to leave your kids with because in, in the real world, things were anything but simple. Right. Things were anything but fun and enjoyable. And, and George always had a way of, of making things work out in the end and escaping danger. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's an important lesson too, that, that they wanted to uh, express to these children. The seven original tales by the Rays are like kind of mini stories that would fall into the category of prose fiction. Fast forward to the 1990s, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt commissioned and distributed additional early reader curious George stories that were not written um, or illustrated by uh, by the Rays. Those stories were short. They tended to focus on um, one simple mishap. Yeah. Uh, and then George, in the end, would have a way of making things right. And those are probably the stories that I, I'm finding myself thinking about when I think of Curious George and the stories I've read to Andrew and Nathan. And admittedly, too, Phil, when I think of Curious George, my mind tends to gravitate towards the PBS cartoon. Yes. You know, that yeah, we often have yeah. on at the house and, you know, when they were little. Almost nothing was publicly known about the Rays' wartime experiences until a 2005 book entitled The Journey That Saved Curious George, written by Louis Bourdain and illustrated by Alan Drummond, um, was, was published. The Rays were enormously successful after coming to New York uh, and signing their book deal, but they lived very modestly. Okay. Um, but the two things I'm, I'm going to point out with regards to the Rays and the work they produce and the storylines 
that really resonated throughout the Curious George plots to wrap things up for today is number one, the trouble that George encounters in his adventures, Phil is almost never human. And what I mean by that, the trouble always lies really in the circumstances, the craziness of the busy world that George is a part of and an observer of. His dire situations tend not to be about humanity. Huh. So it's not a person who's creating it or um, another animal that's creating it. It's just the world that we live in. Interesting. So it's it it doesn't tend to focus on bringing negative attention to a specific person or group. Wow. And I think that that's a very important lesson. And and I told you, you're. I'm not sure if you're going to believe me on this or not. You're going to go home and check tonight on this next point, Phil. Ready? Okay. It's also been noted that George does not have a tail. Wait, so, what? Yes, all monkeys do possess tails. Um, they're fun and easy to draw. And obviously, having lived with two monkeys of their own, the rays would have been privy to this. So why then did George not have a tail? All right, I'm Googling it. Impossible to say, but Wait fun to speculate. You're absolutely right. No tail on Curious George. So I guess if you're listening and you have a good theory as to why a tail would be noticeably absent from Curious George, let us know why. Oh, my. I, I don't even know what to say. Because if you think of monkeys, monkeys have tails. They hang from trees, right? It's it's one of the characteristics you immediately think of when you picture a monkey in your mind. But it's one of those things where you're like, oh, really? Curious George didn't have a tail? He didn't. What? I, oh, my. That's one of so those like uh, Mandela effects. Mandela effects. Oh right, right. Gosh. I can't, I can't get over this. Well, this is amazing. And I, I it's interesting that you point out that it, 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 there's no one to blame. Right. They've gone through one of the worst times in history. Yeah. And, and, and again, you think back to if you know their story and now you look at their books, I think if you, you often books that seem the most simple and most elementary, sometimes fill yeah. the most in-depth and some of the deepest books. Yeah. And I, I would see there's almost like an element of like, there's no one to blame except the fallen world. Right. Like it's a, it's an, almost like an original sin story yeah. in and of itself. I, it, it's unbelievable. And George is just a fun character who experiences it, enjoys it, learns from it and continues to have fun. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff. And I'm Phil Hornder. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks. <laughs>